0: In the year of our Lord, 1940, the poet Edward Estland Cummings published a set of 50 poems. He very creatively titled this, this collection, 50 Poems. In fact, none of the poems have any titles at all. They're all just numbered. That's kind of his style, uh, pushing against the boundaries of conventions ever so slightly at all times. Uh, Number 29 in this collection of poems actually uh, came to stand out. It it came to gather the attention of literary critics and and has remained uh, in in anthologies for the last 80 years. Uh, Critics, in order to... Uh, sort of denote which poem they're intending to to dig into, have come uh, to actually name his poems just based on the first line of the poem. The first line of this particular poem is, Anyone lived in a pretty how town? Uh, Even even the title itself sounds sort of nonsensical. It it fits perfectly within Cummings' atypical approach to be pushing uh, just against those boundaries enough. His his use of language is sort of highly individualized and and requires sort of more than a cursory glance to understand uh, his intentions and what he means to convey. In, In the case of anyone lived in a pretty how town, we actually see him use pronouns in unconventional ways and We see these sort of nonsensical phrases ring out. Phrases like, he sang his didn't, he danced his did. Or, they sowed their isn't, they reaped their same. But, but there's just enough, even though these lines seem not far removed from uh, child's rhymes or, or, or maybe something like Dr. Seuss, there's just enough in the poem that, that, that gathers our attention, something that tells us there's something more here, something, something deeper going on, uh, that, that, that would reward a closer reading, that, that, would, that would, uh, would give up its secrets if we would just be patient enough with it right? There seems to be an awareness in the poem, actually, the more we read it, that that not all is as it should be. That There's something profoundly wrong with this world. Uh, There's a kind of ache in the poem about modern society and and what it has done to obscure creation and creativity. Uh, We read through the poem and we come across lines like, one day anyone died, I guess, and no one stooped to kiss his face. Busy folk buried them side by side, little by little, and was by was. And, and along with Cummings, we start to feel the ache that, that maybe modern life and its goals and its machinations are doing more to obscure the abundant life than they are to uh, reveal the abundant life. It's lines like this that, that seem to reveal that Cummings is intimately equated with the weight of the human experience. Uh, uh, to be sure, he, he's not exemplary in all ways, and he makes all manner of mistakes in his life, but we read on because we have this sense that, that, that he feels what we feel, that, that he knows the things that we have come to know in our own human experiences, but, but how to, how to un, unveil that, how to, how to get to the depths of it when, when it seems so nonsensical and language is used in such unconventional ways? Well, the literary critic who was trying to lean into a work like this might begin with maybe the biography of Edward Estlin Cummings and, and try to see and, and hear the same things that the author saw and heard so that they could understand just exactly why the author came to say the things he said. We, we might, uh, as literary critics, look at the wider world and see what was going on in 1940 uh, that E.E. That, that e. Cummings may uh, be commenting on. It, it may be his experiences and, and the wider world that he's engaging in that, that actually eventually reveals the, the meaning of the poem, his intentions. Uh, we might ask those who knew him and, and ask them to tell us about the ways that he was understood and, and maybe the ways he was misunderstood. I think if we, if we did those things, if, if we started to look at the body of work of E.E. E. Cummings, then we would maybe come to have a deeper appreciation for the truth uh, and, and, and what he was trying to convey and what he was trying to, to communicate. I, th- I think if that's true for E.E. E. Cummings and poem number 29 of 50 poems published in 1940, how much more is that true? if we're thinking about truth that's been revealed in the Holy Scripture? How much much more do we have to leverage the tools available to us to understand the depth and the beauty that's being revealed in Scripture? How many more tools should we employ to be conversant in the great conversation of faith that's been taking place since the beginning of time? Uh, That's what the Apostles' Creed is. It, it's one more tool for us to understand more deeply what, what's, what's being revealed to us, the truth that's being, that's being uh, brought to life in us. It, it's a confession that was, that was written by friends of God, so to speak, hoping to introduce new acquaintances to the work of God. It's written to aid us as we take our place within the great conversation of faith and and as we hope to help others take their their place at the table as well. Uh, This this table that God made big enough for all, but this same table that uh, the church has sometimes portrayed as being exclusive. Yes, this is a confession of faith in which we confess that we have sometimes gotten it wrong, that, that we have sometimes been complicit in leading others astray about who God is and what he's about. Yes, there are, there are times where people have been led astray. Daughters and, and sons of God who have been led away from the table, who have been confused about the very nature and the heart of God. And, and, and this confession of faith this, this Apostles' Creed, this statement, is one tool to help us to, to, to reveal again, once and for all, the heart of our God. It, the Apostles' Creed was absolutely necessary. It plays a role in the adoption process and the children of God, so that as, as, the, as the leaders of the church press the borders of the gospel out ever further outwards, they 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 could introduce God to the people and and, and help them to come to, to, to know the, the central tenets of the faith. Uh, it's a constant reminder to the church that that we live as children of God. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a confession of faith that's in, in tension with the wider culture. It, it, it speaks in conversation against the ways that the, the children of God have been badly misled, uh, about what the good life looks like and what, what human flourishing really is. The Apostles' Creed is a reminder to us about who the church is and to whom the church belongs. It's, it's a statement that's, that's written to center us on right belief and right action and right feeling. Uh, for those who have been made right with God. Uh, for those who have been rescued by the God who makes all things right. It, it's, it's, it's a confession that stands in the same stream of beauty and truth that Abraham stood in so long ago. From Abraham onwards, God has been making his way known through his followers and, and the Apostles' Creed stands in that same stream. As faithful followers of God and of Jesus in the centuries following the ministry of Jesus hoped to reveal the way of the Lord to the, the people around the Mediterranean and then into Asia and into Africa and so on and so forth. They use the Apostles' Creed as, as an introduction to who this God is and, and what he's like. It is, in fact, a necessary reiteration of the truth of this way of the Lord. Uh, This way of the Lord that's been revealed by God in Scripture for those of us, for all of us who know that it's a struggle, that, that that we need to be constantly reminded what's worth holding on to because we've often gone astray. It's a confession of faith for those of us who confess that we have sometimes given into fear, It's a reminder of true hope. It's it's a reminder for those who have tended towards false hopes and, and hopelessness that there is true hope in this Jesus Christ and in God the Father and the Spirit that he bestows upon us. And that, thankfully, is where the creed ends, with hope. It ends here with real, live Christian hope, hope with a capital H, Hope that the Spirit of God has made us a people, a, a, a holy church, a communion of saints, where, where once we were not a people, he has made us a people, he has made us right with God, and, and he has forgiven our sins, and that we, we are blessed to receive this forgiveness, but also to bestow this forgiveness. There's real hope in that. There's real hope uh, for the created world at the end of the creed here. Uh, that life abundant is not just on the other side of the grave, but begins now. Sometimes we say that there is life before, life after death. Uh, There's life because there's one who has put death to death on our behalf. There is this Jesus who has rescued us. And so we join in with the chorus of the saints and say the Apostles' Creed to be reminded yet again of what is really good and beautiful and true. That while there is something that's not quite right about this world, just, just like E.E. E. Cummings put his finger on in 1940, where there's, there's, there's this, this culture that's obscuring the beauty and the truth of who God is, the Apostles' Creed helps to remind us and help us, helps us to remember that there's, there's hope still. So I think maybe it would be good for us to say the confession one more time. Let's, let's speak the confession together uh, before spending time with just the last two lines. Uh, let's, let's maybe even stand where we are and, and say this in, in solidarity with the truth, in solidarity with the, with the saints, in solidarity with, with the spirit. Let's say what is true. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, (coughs) the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For us in this last uh, installment of this sermon series, where we recognize that faith is a struggle and we need to return to the tenets of the faith over and over again and return to the one who made our faith possible over and over again. In this last installment of this series, we're going to be focused on the last couple of lines. The, the two lines, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And just like we might, if we were analyzing a poem, we look at these lines and we might ask ourselves, why did the ancient leaders of the church feel it was right and good to include these lines? What, what was going on in the wider world? What had they experienced? What conversations were they a part of that led them to say, we must include that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? What is it that, that led them to elude? To the fact that this Jesus who was crucified, died and buried is the same Jesus that provides resurrection for us and life everlasting for us in allusion to maybe John fourteen six, where it says that this Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Well, if, if we do lean into this and, and think about what was going on in the wider world when the Apostles' Creed was, was kind of coming into form, we, we can maybe get some clues as to why they found it so necessary to push back against the ways that the people of God were being led astray. There's a few things we can, we can see that, that as, as the Apostles' Creed was being formalized in like the third and the fourth century, we could see that the church was undergoing persecution. It, it, it maybe is no wonder, uh, it maybe it's no wonder that the Apostles' Creed finishes with this flourish of hope for those who would follow God, given that they were experiencing persecution. Not, not universally and not all the time, but, but certainly this was an, an ever present fear uh, all the way up into the fourth century for the church. Persecution was a, was a very real threat. To the, to the church fathers who penned the Apostles' Creed. Uh, beyond that, we, we see actually church leaders themselves who had, who had, who had gone astray, who had, who had begun to teach things that weren't true and, and led some astray with them. Maybe the most prominent of these is Marcion. The, the, the Marcionite heresy is one of the more famous ones in the early church. And it's actually, I think, really essential to this particular set of lines. Because Marcion believed that if you looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you saw was two different gods. And what you saw is that there was a God who, who, who created this, this world with, with all its evil. and and its disgusting material physicality. And then there was a God who would help us to escape that. Marcion did not believe in the goodness of creation. He thought creation was a a mistake. And he took Christian scripture and he force fed it to to otherwise well-meaning followers of Jesus so that they too came to believe that there was something wrong with his creation and they they needed to escape it. That the, that the body was a problem, that all of creation was a problem. It's, it's not even just Marcion, actually, because if you look at the wider world and the Greco Roman philosophers of the time, we could see these Stoic philosophers and Neoplatonists who said very similar things about creation that, that the creation was a lesser form of existence, that the, that the physical and material substance was problematic. It has its uh, expression in in, in Gnostic heresies in the Christian Church, and all these people who who became confused about what the goal of salvation was. All these all these Christians who came to believe that creation was the problem that needed to be solved, that we needed to get out of here. And, and 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 so the the apostles and, and the leaders of the church and the faithful ones said, "No, we have to remind our church that the creation, the created place is good. We have to help them remember that the body will be redeemed, not just the soul, not just the spiritual existence but but all of us in fact it's important for us to start to Uh, be honest and and confess that by the time we get to the 4th century, we find that there are Christians who are giving in to political ideologies for their hope. Those who had pinned their hope on uh, Constantine. Those who had pinned their hope on on the empire and the emperors. And, And those who thought that's what hope really looked like. I think it's for this reason that, that the, uh, the apostles and the leaders of the church and those who would help to formulate the, this confession of faith found it important and necessary to say to these people, these people who might have been losing hope, these people who were losing the shape of hope or, or, or placing their hope in the wrong places, they need to be reminded that there is hope for the world and it comes from God, that it comes from Jesus alone. And that this hope for the world would make all things right. Just like Dr. Kevin Dudley was saying last week, that that God intends for all things to be made right. Shalom, all things as they should be. That God's uh, God's aim is restoration and redemption and rescue and all things put back together. Creation is good. Good. In the distinctly Christian hope that we have, creation is good. That that these bodies were given to us as a gift. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to read very far to find the the repetitive phrase that God saw and called it good. Saw what he had created and called it good. We we move forward and we, we see this becomes an actual theme in the Old Testament whether it's from the Psalms, and we see in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that he created on purpose, with a purpose, the heavens and the earth. We could look at the wisdom, the wisdom literature like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, or, or into Job, and we see that God created with wisdom and with understanding that, that he had a purpose and order in mind as he created. The Christian hope affirms the goodness of creation over and over and over again. That there's value here. That God intends for his people to put this goodness on display. Uh, and to put this goodness back together. Uh, we, we see God's prophets actually call God's people to account. Uh, holding them accountable for the times where, where they were uh, not living uh, in such a way as to put the goodness of creation on. On display when, when they were living in such a way as to denigrate the value of those around them, or denigrate the value of, of the earth around them, maybe the most prominent of those uh, passages can be found in Isaiah 58. Isaiah is a prophet who's casting vision over and over and over again. And what is he casting his vision on, helping us to see? He's helping us to see how things ought to be, and helping us to see the God who will make it all right again. And helping us to see that we play a role in it. In Isaiah 58, he's calling the people of God to account because they've been living out of alignment with what is truly God-given hope. They, they, they've been denigrating the value of those around them. They've been following the rules of God, but, but, but not in a way that, that spills over into, into their lives and into their actions. Look at this. God says their Sabbath is is without value, is, is, uh, is not pointing to the truth because they're living out of alignment with his calling, with his way. It says this, "'Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please "'and exploit all your workers. "'Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife "'and in striking each other with wicked fists.'" You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, uh, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to, to honor them and their created value by, by clothing the naked and, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? See again, how, how the prophet Isaiah reminds us of the goodness of creation and how we need to live in accordance with God's way within that creation. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am when we understand the goodness of creation and that there's a way that we ought to live uh, here and now, that's when we're putting the way of the Lord on display. That's when we're we're realizing real, live Christian hope. Uh, The phrase, the resurrection of the body here, shows us in sort of shorthand that our faith recognizes no separation between the sacred and the secular. Marcion wanted to say the physical goes here, the spiritual goes there. The Neoplatonists and the Stoics wanted to do the same. Uh, There were people who said our hope is only for after the grave. But yet the prophet of God Isaiah says, no, 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 there's no separation here. All of this belongs to God. All of it must live in alignment with God's ways. And there is no separation between the sacred and the secular. We, we don't denigrate the body and, then, and elevate the spirit. No, we, we give it all over to God. The life that we live, we live for the glory of God, for the, for the good of others. We're not, esca- we're not seeking to escape earth for heaven, but we're hoping to bring heaven to earth. That's the vision of Isaiah 58. It's not Sabbath for anyone until it's Sabbath for everyone. That's the Christian vision. That's actually the vision here. Isaiah is saying it's time for us to bring heaven to bear on earth. We can't call it Sabbath because on one day we set aside our time and then the rest of the time we oppress. That's not Sabbath. It's not Sabbath until it's in alignment with heaven. It's not Sabbath until it's come to roost in our hearts and then spill out to every corner of the globe from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. It's it's not Sabbath until our mouths are announcing the good news that that our very lives are actually putting the good news on display that Christ is King and he's come to gather all who are willing into his kingdom. It's not Sabbath until we are seeking to bring justice and and to join God in making all things right in the bodies that he gave us for the bodies that he's given others. Uh, we, We do this. We join him as forcefully and as frequently as we can in imitation of Christ. And here's why. Christ inhabited a body. He affirmed the goodness of creation by joining in creation, in our midst. He was incarnate. Uh, John tells us that Jesus tabernacled among us, That, that he did this in order to set us free because creation is of such value that Jesus will not leave it for dead. This Jesus leaves nothing and no one for dead. This Jesus says, everybody I have given is of great value. He announced it when he began his very ministry, when, when it was time for him to say, here's what I'm about, here's what my mission is, when it was time for him to say, here's what I'm here to do, he read from a scroll. In Luke chapter four, we see this recounted. He, re- he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, for those who had ears to hear Jesus' message, they gained strength for today and not just hope for tomorrow. What they heard was that God's kingdom had come near. In fact, it's one of Jesus' favorite phrases, that the kingdom is near. And and we need to bend our will towards his so that we can experience this kingdom here and now, and not just later. Here's what we find when we look at Jesus' ministry and the way that he brings things into alignment with God's will. We find that ours is a this-worldly faith, a faith that has impact on this world and on creation. And and it's a faith that doesn't just wait for an unseen future, but brings God's future into our present. It's a a faith that joins Jesus in making God's future known by manifesting it here in the present. Because here's the beauty of this. The same Spirit of the Lord that had, had anointed Jesus, that had hovered at his baptism by, by John the Baptist. That's the same spirit that's on us. The book of Ephesians says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's a, that's a spirit that's in us. The, the same spirit that affirmed the goodness of creation is now living in us. That is to say, it is what's making it possible for us to see with fresh eyes the beauty and the goodness of creation. Because sometimes it's hard to see. it's no wonder that Marcion got so far off the rails. There's a lot of pain in our world. It's not confusing to me that the Platonists and the Neoplatonists and the Stoics thought it would be good to get out of here. But the beauty of it is the Spirit of God gives fresh eyes to us so that we can see that we're here to liberate, that we're here to make new. Look at Romans chapter 8. Verses 18 through 25, but here's what it says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Why, why for that? Well, well, because at least in part, when the children of God are revealed, they will care for creation the way that human beings were always meant to care for and steward creation. That, that we would recognize the goodness and the value of creation and that we would bring it into harmony with God's will. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. You, you see, later on in the passage, it says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit that, that we've been given the first fruit of the Spirit for the redemption of our bodies. So what conversation did the apostles enter into when they, when they put the resurrection of the body into the creed? It was this conversation that says, God is going to make all things right and he's going to use his people in part to accomplish that will. He intends for us to join in with him through this faith because ours, our faith, is a thoroughgoing faith and a thoroughgoing hope. Not just hope for our souls, but hope for all things to be brought back to life. That, that we will see and participate in the redemption of all things, that, that all things will be made new, and that renewed men and women will get to take part in the relib- liberation of all of creation. Uh, that we will get to be curators, uh, uh, curators of, of, of heaven and of hope and of the goodness of creation, that we can put God on display as we care for his creation. In fact, that's the abundant life. That's what abundant life looks like, joining God in caring for all of creation and every body he has given out to every child of his that doesn't yet know they are loved by him, That's life abundant. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 10.10 when he says he's come to give us abundant life. He's talking about following him and serving others so that they might know they are precious too. It's actually in the same passage in John chapter 10 that, that Jesus talks about being the shepherd, one that takes care of and protects his followers. And he says this, he says that his sheep will recognize his voice. In this passage, he says, they'll follow him. they will follow this one, this, this Jesus, who went about giving abundant life so that we could be spectators. No, we, we follow after this one who is the way and the truth and the life so that we can participate in this abundant life, so that we can give life to others. And that we could put his life on display that others could see what real life looks like. Life eternal and life abundant that can only be found in him. Life eternal found in him because he's eternal. Revelation tells us that he's the one who is and is to come. And Colossians 1 tells us that we are hidden in him. And if he is life and life abundant and eternal life, then, then if we're hidden in him, then we experience it too. Paul often alludes to this idea that, that, if, we, that if we follow him in that serving and in that sacrifice and, and we have a death like his, then, then certainly we'll have a resurrection like his as well, that we'll have true, thoroughgoing hope for all things. That's what we see here. Jesus is preaching not just the quantity of life he intends to give, but but the quality of life that he intends to give. This is why the apostles found it necessary to put this phrase in the creed, that those who started looking for life elsewhere in political systems, or or those who started to get confused about what abundant life might look like, Or what flourishing would really look like. Those people who had begun to despair that they would ever really experience life would come to know again that that true life is found in Jesus. Be reminded that both the quantity of life and the quality of life that their heart yearns for is found only in Jesus. And then put it on display. What we're seeing here is, is, is the ancients saying we need to be reminded that this, this one is the one that gives life. This is the thing we say amen to. We say amen to the creed, joining our voices to the ancient chorus of the saints, putting Christ on display in our very lives with right belief and right actions that others might have right feeling towards God and come to know Him. So that people like E.E. Cummings, who can see that things aren't as they should be, could also come to see that there's one who intends to make it all right. One who has gathered a people, uh, a holy Catholic church, a communion of saints, who live forgive, forgived lives and, and live in forgiving ways, who take care of creation and put what, what real life is on display. Those who have been blessed join in with Father Abraham as they bless others. So as we finish here, I want want to think about this for just a minute. As we read through the the creed, we see very very strongly put on display the ways we have been blessed by by a God who intends to rescue us and make all things right. I, I want us to think about how have we been blessed Relationally. Dr. Kevin Dudley last week talked about how our relationships are made right with God and with others by Jesus. How have we been blessed relationally? Or, but with what skills have we been blessed? Or, in what ways have we experienced plenty? Next, I want you to think about this. Now that you've been blessed, who can you bless? How can you pass on this talent that you've been given? From the, from the very beginning with Abraham on through the, the prophets to, to the coming of the Messiah and the apostles, we see over and over again that we get to participate in this by, by passing on this blessing, demonstrating the true value of God's created world. Who can we bless? As we see this list, I want you to do one more thing. I want you to think Who on your list will you benefit least from blessing? Who is on on your list that you won't get any residual kickback from blessing? Who is on your list that there will be no return on your investment in public currency, but only, only the opportunity to remind this person that they're a precious daughter or son of God who created all things and called them good. I want you to bless that person. And I want you to do it this week. And I want you to remember that when you do, your life is joining the chorus of the saints who are singing the song of heaven here on earth. The Apostles' Creed and the life lived by the apostles and by the saints, that's the sound that heaven makes on earth. It's time we make a joyful noise. Let's be, let's be living out our creed. Let's be putting it on display, our beliefs with our actions so that people could have right feeling and understanding of who God is and how much they are loved by him.